Hello, and welcome to Follow the Woo podcast, where each week I, Fenelon Kush, will guide you on a journey into the land of the woo. We're going to investigate witchcraft, meditations, the paranormal and supernatural, alien and fey encounters, gurus, shamanism, and, and, and all the woo. So hold on to your butt. This just might be the weirdest part of your day. Hello, humans. I hope you are still holding on to your butts during this bizarre Mercury in retrograde moment. The good news is that we are so close. There's only one more day of this left, and then you can go on back into the world of signing your contracts and making your important decisions. This week also started with a new moon in Aquarius. So I don't know about you, but I'm feeling that jazzy creative energy that Aquarius always seems to naturally emit. It feels like it's a good week to reevaluate what we really want for the coming year. I know we often make vision boards and set intentions at the beginning of the year. And usually by the time we get to February, we're already abandoning those, myself included. Sometimes many of those goals need to be abandoned because they came from a place of perfectionism or shame or somebody else's expectations of you. So yes, abandon those fuckers. But some of the other ones shouldn't be abandoned because they reflect our dreams and our innermost desires for happy, creative, fulfilling lives. I just want to remind you and myself right here, right now, that you are a miraculous being with extremely special and singular gifts to offer the world. And I'm rooting for you. And I'm rooting for myself too. Be strong. Try your hardest not to get sucked into the seductive patterns of hyper productivity. You are more than your to-do list. And you're more than your boss's to-do list. Listen to that song you love. Take that motherfucking walk. Hug someone you love for a long-ass time so the oxytocin can kick in. And if nobody's available because you're in a COVID bubble, hug your damn self. We need you. I need you. The earth needs you to be the very happiest version of you you can muster. I'm just bringing this up because I keep hearing it from people in my sphere over and over and over again. The unhappiness, the hamster wheel of productivity, and such little time for anything that we care about. And I'm also thinking about it because I feel that way a lot lately. So I am just telling you, and I'm telling myself, find what feels good. Find what feels good. Thank you for listening to my TED Talk. This week, my guest is Mara Bishop. She's a shamanic practitioner, intuitive consultant, teacher, author, and artist. With over 25 years' experience, she uses her personal evolution counseling method to provide an integrated approach to spiritual healing, personal growth, and emotional well-being to clients around the world. Her books are guides for spiritual practice. Her courses, articles, and consultations are created to help people connect to their inner resources and to create a healthier world. In this chat, we don't focus a lot on the mechanics of shamanism. 
but we discuss appropriation of shamanistic practices and how that happens quite frequently, spiritual boundaries, maintaining balance between realms or worlds, journeying, the value of the natural world, and the importance of new magic in training your energetic body for our modern world. This episode is named after Mara's book, Shamanism for Every Day, which I highly recommend if you're looking to dip your toes in the practice of shamanism, or if you're just looking to deepen your already happening shamanistic practice. It's one of those books that's 365 days, so there's a journey for each day for the entire year, which is really fun. I love her style and outlook on this practice, and I hope to work with her directly in the future someday. So let's get into the woo with Mara. I think the smartest way to start is with the definition of shamanism, because I know that this is such a vast topic and people's ideas of what shamanism is can change country to country, culture to culture, even person to person. So Mm -hmm. from your experience, what is shamanism? Yeah. Well, I think that's a great way to start. And I think we also want to be just right up front with there's some controversy about that word. And we want to be really sensitive and make sure that we're not being appropriative in our language. And we kind of can't help it because the word itself is from a specific people, right? The the word shaman is from the Tungus people of Siberia. So the answer to that question is pretty nuanced. And so to be specific, I practice core shamanism. And I also want to say that I am not the arbiter of a specific definition of shamanism. So I can describe to you how I practice it, how I was taught it, what my belief is about it. And, you know, and as you alluded to, it's it's a pretty vast subject. There are many different definitions. I think at the heart of the work, and certainly at the heart of it for me, is the, the practice of direct revelation. It's having an immediate local to your your place your space, the spirit within you, the spirits around you, it's having a direct experience. And in many ways, that is part of how indigenous shamans and people who are have practiced this kind of genre of work for thousands and thousands of years related. And it's how we can relate wherever we are on the planet right now in an authentic way, where we're not trying to emulate a particular culture's beliefs or practices, whatever our background is, whoever we are, that we're creating a direct connection to spirit. So there can be, we can have our own personal definition of that. And at the same time, knowing how important it is to acknowledge that there's, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of really violent history of indigenous cultures trying to practice their own spiritual ceremonies, even speaking their own languages, having other cultures really deliberately through political violence, through physical violence, through all sorts of different ways, trying to take that away. So we have to be careful that we don't say like, oh, hey, this is great. I think I want to practice this. 
and not acknowledging that depending on where we come from, there's this history of other people saying, oh, no, you can't do that. And we're going to take it away from you by force. (laughs) We're going to take away your connection to the land that is sacred to you by force. But I also think that doesn't mean that we can't find some place to create our own meaningful spiritual connection now. I'm really glad that you brought that up right away. It comes up so often in these conversations that I have because I'm often talking to people who are participating in spiritual practices that like there's just no way that that's not coming from somewhere else that's older and probably disconnected from where you are in this quote unquote reality now. And it happens a lot in witchcraft, too. I would not be on the voodoo path, for instance, because that's not my culture. I think you brought up a good point of trying to find your path within the system if that system is calling to you, but then still educating yourself and being knowledgeable about certain terminology that you should not use that would be intrinsically appropriative or disrespectful if they fell out of your mouth. Right. And even as you're describing and what path might be appropriate for you as a personal choice, right? You might say, okay, this this feels right to me. This doesn't feel right to me based on my culture. Even that is really complicated. Some of us can say, oh, I can trace my genealogy back to this particular country and this particular culture. So that is my biological heritage. And therefore, I can find authentic practice because of that that thread of my biology that maybe then also carries an ancestral spiritual connection. What about people who don't know their biology? What about people who are adopted? What about people who have lost contact? What about the person who maybe has those roots, but has no way of knowing who they are, right? Do they have less of a right to explore and practice authentic spirituality for them? So it's complex. I think if you're asking questions and you're being respectful and you're educating yourself and you're looking for authentic teachers that will tell you, hey, what you're doing is maybe not not what you should be doing. And this is why I think listening to those teachers, if you have access to them, again, it's complex because maybe you don't have access to them. Right. Access is so huge. Huge. I mean, especially in witchcraft, too. So many people don't have access to elders. There's no elders to to find. So maybe if you're lucky and you're in a big city and there's a lot of covens and then you can find, you know, an elder lineage, but that's rare. So most people are just working so like as solo witches or hedge witches. I imagine that's the same in shamanism. You talked about, I think, this revelation. Is that how you described it? Direct revelation. Yeah. So you talk about that in the beginning of your book some, that there's this active conscious experience that you're having. And that's kind of what it means to be a shaman, that you're experiencing wherever you are, whether it's the city or in, you know, you are lucky enough to be in nature all the time, either place you're, you're digging in, you're finding your roots, and then you're actively observing that. Is Mm -hmm. that where a shamanistic practice starts from your perspective? Shamanism is complex, right? I think there are a a variety of things that we could say are shared foundational aspects of shamanism. So that idea of direct revelation, meaning that your experience is personal rather than somebody has told you that this is what spirit means. This is how spirit communicates. Here is my 
and this is, I'm not meaning this with any disrespect to any other religion or spiritual practice, but here is the, here's the book, here's the dogma, here's what you should believe, but you're not having the experience yourself, right? So that doesn't mean that there aren't oral traditions. It doesn't mean there aren't, there's not a history of, of story and mythology and belief that would be part of shamanic practice, but it means there's value in one's personal experience with spirit definition can, can vary, right? <laughs> However we might define <laughs> yeah. it, right? Versus somebody saying to you, this is what it is. Right. So that's the direct revelation part, right? Getting getting guidance, having a communion with, developing a reciprocal relationship with helping spirits, with nature, and with, you know, I would say the divine that exists within, like understanding our, ourselves and our own spiritual nature too. I think there are other things that are common to many different cultures, you know, the idea that everything's alive, the whole relationship with nature. I mean, I think there's some overlap with probably in the different things that you and I practice. And I, you know, I wouldn't want to presume, but the value of the natural world, the power of the natural world, the reverence for the natural world, right? In spirit and in body. I think that's, that's a big part of shamanic work and the idea of how everything is so interconnected. Yeah. I was thinking about that a lot because I started to, I've worked with Ecuadorian shamans before and before we got on here, and I've, I've actually spoken to another, I think she would call herself a shamanic practitioner. As I, as I would too. I wouldn't ever refer to myself as a shaman. Yeah. And we talked a lot about her relationship with shamanism and, and the natural world. And I started to think about like my, my Buddhist background and what I've experienced in my order, the coven that I, that I work with. And then what I experienced with the shamans that I worked with, and it, it seems like there's just so much overlap and they all kind of all roll into each other. So I was really wondering what sets shamanism apart from these other paths, because as I'm sure you know, <laughs> Buddhism is also very reverent toward the the natural world and there's also this like i'm going to observe and i'm going to have this direct experience i'm not going to wait until somebody tells me what to do i'm not going to listen to any of these dogmas same thing with witchcraft they're all kind of empowering and mm -hmm. the only thing i could come up with is journeying mm -hmm. although <laughs> then i argued with myself because Witches do something that's similar to journeying as well. And mm -hmm. so I'm wondering if you can kind of help me out with this and if it even matters. But would you say that the particular practice of journeying is something that sets shamanism apart from, from other practices? I, I think that's a, that's a pretty accurate answer. And I think that like instruction in core shamanism, that would be something that was brought up as, oh, yeah, how do you, there are so many overlaps oh, okay, we use drumming shamanically and cross-culturally, there's like re repetitive percussion, drumming. Okay, we're altering our state of consciousness to perceive something different. Well, people, we do that in meditation all the time. You know, we alter our state of consciousness with music. We alter. So the, the fact of altering a state, that has overlap with so many different things. We're connecting with nature. We've got reverence for with nature, right? So you're right. There's There's so much overlap that, okay, yeah, what makes it different? So I think that there is that very specific 
we are altering, shifting our perception with the intention of making connection to helping spirits with an intention. I think that there's kind of a combination that we put into that package of the shamanic journey, which may not not necessarily be the language of, you know, specific other cultures might call it, right? That's kind of a core shamanic phrase, the shamanic journey. Again, from yeah. the language thing, it's more of a, like a newer phrase, but the essence of that, like we're going to, we're going to have a ceremony where we intentionally commune in that way. And in order to do it, in order to shift our ordinary perception, we're going to do something, right? A lot of times it's percussion. It, it, it may be movement. It may be substances, right? There's going to be some way that we get out of our normal state. Just for the listeners that don't know that term, how would you define that term journey, going on a journey, journeying? I think that particularly when we are talking about methods, these things that are kind of expansive and vast and mystical, we can kind of bring them down to, we can reduce them in a way. It's like, well, we do this thing. We do these steps, right? And it's kind of like, oh, like the power kind of goes out of it, right? So in the way I try and approach, you know, the practice of shamanism for myself or how I work with other people is there are a lot of things that can fall under that umbrella that go beyond maybe the typical definition, okay? Mm -hmm. So typically when we talk about core shamanic journeying, it's, you have an intention, right? You're going to, you want to get some information or you want to spend time with the helping spirit, or you want to do some healing work and everything shamanically is done in partnership in some way, right? So you've developed a relationship, uh, assuming that you've been doing it for a little while, you've developed a relationship over time with, with helping spirits. And then as we were just talking about, there's a perceptual shift that helps you go to experience that. Another part of this work is that there's this idea that there's an energy or spirit that underlies everything, right? We have our physical bodies. We have our spiritual bodies. There's the, the world that's right outside our door, the beautiful physical world, but there's also the energy of those things, right? There's the tree and there's the energy of the tree. And then there's all of the, there's kind of the cosmology, right? I mean, in all cultures, all mythologies have cosmology and there's, there's some real similarities, right? I mean, you think about how in how many places you see this kind of tripartite upper world, middle world, lower world. We see that in so many different places. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty classic shamanic way of thinking about the spiritual realms, right? Not with a value judgment of, you know, up is good and down is bad, but just there are these places that we can go, different spiritual realms, right? So when you're journeying, you you may say, oh, I'm going to go to the upper world. I'm going to go. I'm going to go to one of these places. I'm going to meet an ally or someone that I that I work with. My experience, I think it was my first experience with a shaman. Might might have been my second. It was a woman, and she was going to find my spirit animal for me. She mm-hmm. was going to help me through that process, and so I had to go in, into a meditative state. And she had to, I think she put on one of those eyebrows, those, uh, yeah. <laughs> those, those face masks. Like all the classic shamans use, the lavender. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And she put that on and some 
big headphones and I could hear and, you know, very faintly, I could hear that there was mega drumming, like pounding in her ears. And she was, she was like, I'm going to go into this trance state. The the drums are going to take me. I'm going on a journey. That's when I first heard Mm -hmm. this term journey and I'm going there. I'm asking with you here as my Mm -hmm. anchor who your spirit guide is. And she did that for, I don't remember how long, maybe 10, 15 minutes. And mm-hmm. she came out and had this amazing story to tell about how my spirit animal was a peacock. That was the first time that I heard of a journey. I'm sharing this now because I want the listeners to kind of have a little bit of framework. I don't want to reduce the the, the vastness of it too right. far down, like you said. But when you participate in journeying for your do you call them clients yeah clients do you go into the drum space just yourself or do you in, in invite them hmm. so I mean I work in in different ways so there are times when I'm working more on behalf of someone where where the person is, you know, say present, you know, COVID has changed things and there's a lot more online. It's hard, yeah. You know, right. And then like navigating that. Well, we'll just say present for the for the moment. Where they're more of being the recipient, right? Just in in receiving mode, right? And in that case, I would, you know, invite somebody to have the intention of their welcoming that spirit, but they're not really having to do the work. They're not having to journey along. They don't need to have any previous experience. We would talk about afterwards is what do they do to develop their own relationship with that helping spirit? We want to be careful with this work that it's not like, you're a little spirit, like, okay, off you go. And I think as this work has become, no, don't let me forget your question and then go off on a wild tangent, which I'm about to do. <laughs> right? Like As this has become more popular and you hear the word spirit animal and it we don't want it to lose its meaning. We don't want it to be this superficial thing. Like, oh, my power animal is this. And just, it just yeah. becomes a superficial thing, right? So what I would always want is to not only let somebody know who it is, but let them know how they can develop their relationship. Because that's where, that's where the power comes from, mm-hmm. right? Now, it's okay if they don't. It doesn't mean that there isn't still that, that presence in the background, even if you're not aware of it. I think we have a lot of things working on our behalf that sometimes we're not aware of consciously, right? So the flip side of that is just because you don't know and just because you're not doing your own journeys doesn't mean you don't have help, right? I, yeah. think, we're not, I think we're not alone even if we don't realize that. So that's kind of one category is somebody that really needs or is seeking to be the receiver in a somewhat passive way. There's another category, and this is what I really just love doing and do more and more of is people who are going to learn for themselves. So I would teach the method. I would set the stage, right? But they're going to do their journey, mm. right? You're going to, they're going to find their own, need their own power animal, right? Or spirit or well, spirit of many different forms, right? And then what's so beautiful for me is to watch as somebody goes from, I don't really have any experience in this, or I've always been interested in this, but I don't really know where to start, or I don't know who to go to and who to trust. Cause it is, as you mentioned before, it's where do you find a community with this? Who do you, right? Who do you, 
who do you go to? There's so much you read online and it's so different. It's hard to know. But to see somebody then see like their world expand. I mean, I had I had somebody say to me once, I started journeying. It was like I went from, you know, thinking the world was flat. And then like it just so much opened up. And to see people's lives change when there are all these different relationships that develop and how powerful that can be. And then there are just lots of different ways that we can work together as opposed to be that kind of, and there's nothing wrong with being a passive recipient. I think we all need that sometimes just to be able to receive and be taken Mm -hmm. care of, but then to be able to kind of have some of those skills for yourself, I think are so, so, so potent. And the, actually the new work that I'm introducing this year is about expanding even more that the definition of journey to be more about how we are in the natural world. So it may be if you're a, if you're a journeyer and you have helping spirits, you bring it there, but it's about experiencing nature and how do we create a reciprocal relationship with nature, both to get information, to get healing, to, to give of ourselves, but to really have it's called in natured and we do that as individual sessions we do it as groups but it's about how we really create power and come home to ourselves as we place ourselves in our environment in a more conscious way so when i was talking earlier about like i don't want to reduce the method sometimes too much this is another way of working where i'm trying to pull it back even from people who might not really be interested in shamanism that's not their thing but people who are moved by the natural world as i am that there are many different ways to kind of approach. Again, as you were mentioning about all the different threads of different religious practices, like, oh, there's so many similarities. And for me, nature has been that sacred experience. We could go down the nature path for a long time, (laughs) but I want to, yeah, (laughs) well, we're going to some, but there's this quote in your book, shamanism for every day, Shamans straddle two worlds, the spiritual Mm -hmm. realm and ordinary reality. They -hmm. need to be skilled navigators of both realms. Mm -hmm. I'm bringing this back to the upper world, middle world, Mm -hmm. lower world. Let's go back to my story. I have no idea what world she went to to go find my power animal. Obviously, from that quote from your book, you're straddling two worlds. Mm -hmm. Technically, it's like four worlds three over here and one over here i don't know explain that to me what are yeah. the what are these three realms over here mm-hmm. that you have to be skilled in okay so my answer to this is going to be i do a lot of this like on the one hand on the other hand like <laughs> here's the like mechanical answer and here's the the woo yeah ooh, here's the big woo answer <laughs> i think it's all one thing the big answer i think all of this is one big thing so i think that we as humans, we're babies trying to make sense. And I say that fondly as babies, not as reductive, but I think that it's very hard for us, uh, I'll say it's hard for me to grasp the the vastness and the bigness and the, the miraculous intricacy of who we are and, and where we live. So we try and create some order, right? That's how we can kind of like, oh, let me get a handle on this. Oh, okay, it's three levels. So I think those things can be true. I think it can be a giant holographic thing. And I think it can also be, oh, there's the lower level and there's the middle level and there's the upper level. And by the way, not all cultures have that three level thing. Other cultures, it's just you're, you're kind of going on 
you're walking out, you know, you're going into through the mist. It's so that's just a, it's a common structure, but it's not the only structure. But when you talk about straddling the world, the way I interpret that is in many ways, this is a practical, it's a practical practice. This is not about just going into an altered state and just blissing out and checking out of the world. There's work to be done. There's practical things to happen. The shaman was responsible. And I'll just say like in today, right now, today here, a shamanic practitioner is supposed to do specific things, whether it's get information or help facilitate healing, but it's practical. So you need to know where you are. You need to be able to say, okay, this is the time where I'm going to go into ceremony and I'm going to alter myself so that my perception is different. And I'm going to maybe be in conversation with a being that other people can't see right in this moment. And the rules when I'm there are different. Maybe I can make myself smaller or bigger or transform in some way. That altered state is going to be different. But when you come back into your non-altered state, you got to know what rules you're playing by here, (laughs) right? You got to be grounded and be able to operate. You don't want to have any confusion there so that you lose touch with how to function in your life. It's like the middle path. I talk about this a lot with my guests because I think some people in the woo world, especially in the original new age movement that was at the height in the 80s and 90s. Classic. (laughs) It was like all woo all the time. airy fairy would be a word that was used a lot and I think when you go too far over there and you're not grounded that's just as bad as being a CEO who never you know never checks into his body at all or her body excuse me CEOs can be ladies as well Mm -hmm. or (laughs) non-binary folk but you know I just I I think that middle path between the two knowing that you got to pay your taxes and pay your bills and you know get enough sleep and take care of your physical body but then that's this is what you're saying. You also have to be able to straddle that other world, which is knowing that when you're about to work with a client, you you got to go into what we call and my coven is magical mode. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah, exactly. Do what you know where you are, know what you're doing. And it's the in trying to describe that, it's like know where you are on the planet, right? Mm-hmm. What country are you in right now? What are the rules of that? country. It doesn't mean that one is better or worse or more dangerous or less dangerous, but there there's kind of standard operating, you know, customs that you should know. Mm-hmm. Things that are okay here that may not be okay there. If we're totally ungrounded, that's that's not going to be helpful to you or to the people around you. If if all you're doing in your practice of whatever it is is trying to escape from your ordinary life, that's a very different practice than one that's trying to enhance and fortify, right? And expand. So in the mechanics of the upper, lower, middle worlds, what would be very simplistic defining characteristics of each of those Mm. worlds? And not to be cagey, but you'd have to see for yourself because they're, they're, um, (laughs) they might be different for you than they are for me. So I wouldn't want to plant a seed for you or for anybody who's listening to say, oh, the upper world is like this. 
because my upper world may be different from your upper world. Mm. There may be some consistencies. I would say there are some overall, maybe some similarities, but I, I wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to limit anybody's experience of those worlds by saying what they're like. I will say the middle world is what we're used to operating in. So the, the upper and lower are really kind of all spirit, right? But here's, here's the combination of both. So it's a little more complicated, but yeah, so I, I was wrong earlier because I was like, oh, there's four worlds, the three worlds, and then the one that we, you know, ter- we define as reality, but kind of the middle world in this structure is that world. Yeah. Okay. But it's the well, it's the overlap of what we're used to thinking of as just as the material world, but it's also the spirit that underlies that. Yeah. You're giving me very, very vague <laughs> answers, <laughs> but I like that you're giving me vague answers because you're right. I've come across this a lot where sometimes the the teacher or the the expert that's that, that's supposed to be giving you the information gives you too much and then you think that that's how it's supposed to be and Ugh. then it it gets it's this huge obstacle because you think yep. you're not where you're supposed to be and and it can be a major hindrance yeah I come across that all the time in this practice, sometimes with with what people expect, whether it's from what people have been taught or what they've read or listened to, whatever. And then also sometimes there's people just being kind of dogmatic in, in areas that shouldn't be dogmatic. Oh, like this is how you should do it. You should do it like this. Or not meeting people where they are. Everybody's different, right? And some people like they do this, they do the first journey. It's like, bam, they are having these technicolor and it's there's somebody there and it's just like they're off and for other people there's a lot of uncovering of fear and doubt and expectation of oh all I, I'm going to show up and it's like I'm flipping on the switch and it's going to be like a movie and I don't really have to do anything but all of these amazing things are going to happen and what they think in multiple different ways, they they have, as you're describing, like it's going to be dun dun dun, and when it isn't immediately like that, it's like their power just kind of, you know, dwindles into thinking they're doing it wrong or they're not worthy or whatever it is, and and sometimes it really takes a while to figure that out and to try different ways. You know, sometimes I'm doing different things with people in one-on-one sessions. We're going to do a guided session. We're going to try this way to get in. We're going to we're going to do it five different times. Because I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give up on people. And my experience is that if somebody really wants to do this work, they're gonna get to do it. Yeah. But they gotta stick with it, you know. There's a show out right now that's been focusing on some Thelma magic, mm-hmm. and it's these old thousand-step, very complex mm-hmm. rituals. That you would have to spend years and years and years sometimes to master. Right. And one of my favorite parts of the show, the commentary by one of the guests was, I don't think the phenomena wants that old magic. I Mm -hmm. think it wants the new magic. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're talking about, I feel Mm -hmm. like. You're giving people space to explore where they are, to find their authentic relationship with their magic or their power or whatever. And the old way was so much about 
you do it this way. And if you don't do it this way, you're not doing it right. And you'll never make it and you'll never manifest what you want to manifest or conjure what you want to conjure. Right. I think that's a really interesting shift that's happening in the age of Aquarius. You're your own guru. Teachers like you who are willing to stay vague on definitions so as not to become dogmatic. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great gift that you're giving people. I really do. We have to find that new magic. I like, I think that's a beautifully put. We have to find it. Yeah. That's, that's what kind this of... is about. And it's not about the teachers. And I think that that shift of power has got to move. It can't be, in my opinion, about what is that person going to do for you? It's got to be about how do I reclaim in an authentic way, but we have, we are eating, nobody's coming to save us. Nope. <laughs> this is, not a, you know, I mean, like we love our superheroes, <laughs> right. Yeah. But we are learning over and over again that those kind of monolithic figures, whether they're religious or political or mythological, you know, that's, that's not where our, the, this next wave lies we have got to we've got to do it individually and that doesn't mean we have to be alone in it though because I don't think we're alone and I think the more that we can find whether it's one other person or a small group of people or however we do it to feel that there is some some kindredness whether it's with animals or plants it doesn't have to be human (laughs) but somehow that sense of we're, we're not alone and for some people that's helping spirits right for a lot of us, it's hard to be in the world with other people, even pre-COVID. It's challenging that way of really, really sourcing our power differently and not giving it away and being who we are. It's important. Whatever it takes to find your new magic, as we're calling it, because I don't think it has to look like wands and drums if you don't want it to. It doesn't have to look like meditating. Your right. spiritual practice could be anything, but... It brings it back to what you kind of said at the beginning, which was that actively knowing where you are, observing what you're doing, experiencing it. How does this feel? Is this something that you want to cultivate? Is this something that gives you that sense of power? Mm-hmm. If it does, maybe you should follow that. Yeah. No matter where it lands. Tools can be powerful. Objects can be empowered. I love my drums. I love my objects on my altar but we can't conflate the power of the practice with the tools that are being used because you're drumming. That's not the power, the power, you know, it's, there's, it can be a vehicle in my own practices. If I have nothing around me, I can still do it. (laughs) It can still be it. Right. Like I don't need any of those things. And I I feel like it can be a trap when we feel like, Oh, we got to have a bunch of stuff around us. Yeah. To do the thing. Totally. Another great point. When I was in witch school, which was leading up to initiation in the coven that I'm in or was in, one of the things, one of the first lessons, I think it was like the very beginning was your most powerful tool as a witch is your mind. Mm -hmm. And so all of the accoutrement so to speak, Mm -hmm. all the little like cute mojo bags and the wand, if you wish to use that or Mm -hmm. whatever you're doing in ritual are there. All they are are tools 
to trick your mind into going into a place it already knows how to go to. That's right. It already knows how to get there on its own. I think we forget that we're already, the power is already there. It's mm-hmm. ju- they're just tricks. They're just cheats, really. Mm-hmm. The drum is a cheat. I mean, it's a cool cheat. It really right. does put you in it. I mean, music is it so. Awesome. I mean, it, helps, it does does do something to us physiologically too, right? I'm yeah. not. So I don't want to minimize. There are some things that really do, as you're describing, it, like it tricks us. Doing something mechanical, it does allow. I think our our concentration to go in a different way. Like we're occupied. Yeah. It's like when you're in the shower and you're you're paying attention to getting yourself clean and you're shampooing, but then your mind gets to go into a creative space, mm-hmm. right? So I think that sometimes the the objects can help us with that, too. Yeah, there's loads of research on music specifically and and other pieces of these practices right. and tools. That so neither one of us are minimizing that. What I think these elders were trying to say is that if you were at a higher vibrational state you would be able to get to that without having to have the music but because you're not we're going to use the music and the music is fun and it does change brain waves and all that shit it's so important to remember that though it can be hard to remember that that you have the power we really don't like to admit that we have power it's funny it's weird and i think it's so scary for so many people Yeah, it's like more scary than being a victim, which is odd. It's almost paradoxical in a way. Part of that, not all of it. And actually, I'll say two things. The first thing I I was going to say is with power comes responsibility, which, spoiler alert, although this is going to air afterwards, but my circle tomorrow night, we're going to talk about this. We're going to journey on this. The idea of responsibility and finding what is the balance there? Because some people are feel so much responsibility, practically, spiritually. But when you really accept what level of power you're capable of, then a lot comes with that. I think the other part of it is when we're talking about these more woo areas, some of these spiritual areas, I think that people have experienced a lot of backlash. Children who have express deep feelings or anomalous experiences or are different than your average kid have had a lot of wounding and a lot of denial, you know, being told that they're, what they're experiencing isn't true or they're not, there's something wrong with them or have had, you know, sometimes scary things happen to them, but there, there's a lot of, a lot of wounding. And sometimes that bleeds through from like, other times when that spiritual power, you know, had some, some pretty scary endings for people. Yeah. I mean, we're my partner and I, my wife and I, I just got married. I am like not used to oh, saying congratulations. it. Thank you. Um, my wife and I are watching <laughs> the discovery of witches. It's just, it's very corny, but they did go into this deep dive in the history of some of the witch trials that were happening in Oh, I don't know, like the late 1500s for a long ass time. And I was so, I was Googling as we were watching because I I did not realize how widespread they were. Oh my God, how scary were... Time and place, right? (laughs) Yeah, women were, women who were probably, I mean, they weren't even like doing anything that crazy. Maybe they just really liked plants or something. That's right. 
put some herbs on and help something out. And there you go. You're and now she's a witch and she has to be like murdered. And I, I mean, I, I knew that it, there were a lot of murders. I just, you're right. It's been such a problem for so long for people to assume their power or own it. Because if they did for a long time, they were killed. And now sometimes you still are killed depending on what country you're in. But in West, the Western world, a lot of times you're just made fun of. The other thing that I think happens a lot is that you're shamed and then put on a track that's actually super detrimental for your well-being because you're mm-hmm. meant to be a shaman or something like shut that. shut it down. Yeah. I think we, you know, we, have, we figure out what's our survival mechanism. And if you're very sensitive and you perceive a lot of things... And you, you know, you have a lot of receptors, so you're picking up information from people or you're seeing, and that becomes overwhelming or people, I mean, there's a, there's a real crossover between some symptoms of mental illness and some symptoms of somebody who's perceiving the spiritual world. Absolutely. All right. Other cultures get that. Our culture does not, does not get that. So to survive a lot of, I think a lot of kids just, they, they get some pushback and they shut that stuff down. I think it doesn't really stay shut down for long. It either kind of starts to, you you feel some kind of uneasiness. Tension. Yeah, tension or tension. There's just something that's not right about cutting off that part of yourself. It varies for you know how severe that is for people and how what the side effects of doing that are. If it's like okay, well, I'm going to go on with my life and I just don't feel hundred percent, or it's it's really really damaging. Do you find with your clients? That you run into that a lot? I mean, do you run into people who are, who have been suppressing their natural gifts because of outside influences that were, you know, judgmental? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I will probably wind up seeing the people who are at a place where they realize they need to do something about it versus the people that are going to continue to suppress it or have just kind of put it so far back that they're not even acknowledging it right if they're coming to see me at that point yeah. they're they get it they're ready in some way in some way right and a lot of that goes to the boundary work right is if you can figure out how to come into the world in a way where you're not denying those sensitivities but you're recognizing that they are a strength as long as you get to have some control so we had talked just, you know, before we come came on about the shining bright without burning out mm-hmm. course. So I'm just going to mention that this is what we're talking about right now is a lot about what that is about, which is when we are really sensitive and, and, and that word also is like the double-edged sword in our culture. Oh, you're too sensitive. I'm using sensitive to mean you perceive a lot. You pick up a lot. You're a, you're a sensitive instrument. And I think the whole concept of being empathic has gone way mainstream at this point. It's much more understood. You know, people are are kind of getting that and using that phrase a lot more. But if you have some ability to, to, to manage your energetic boundaries, you have some control over what's coming in and what's going out. Where in the kind of traditional being an empath and being overwhelmed by your sensitivities and everything that you're receiving, you don't have any control over that. And that's why people get overwhelmed is you go out to dinner with your friend who's miserable. You go into a bar and there's a, 
all the energy of that. You go to work with people who are angry. You are soaking up like a sponge. Every environment that you're in, you go online and you're looking at social media. You live with somebody who is experiencing depression and you take on those feelings because you don't have any boundaries, right? That's kind of what it means to be an empath is you take everything up and you don't have to shut down. The defense mechanism a lot of times is, oh, you're wide open. It's too much. So you either become kind of a loner or you wall it off, right? So you're, you may be present, but you're disconnected. So part of this work is about having the tools to be able to stay present, but not soak it all in in the same way. So I think that's particularly relevant to this idea of, you know, so many of us as children and young people and adults, <laughs> you know, have experiences where we're, we kind of struggle to how do we, how do we remain ourselves in this world and have it not be overwhelming? And there are ways to do it. Yeah, there are. But I am one of those sensitive folk. <laughs> and when I was a kid, I thank goddess, I had a mom who was very open-minded and who gave me the term empath at a young age. But I still didn't know how to deal with it. And so I shut it all down. I drank and I did drugs. That's how I dealt with it. Yep. Because I didn't know what to do. And mm-hmm. even though I had the term, I didn't get it early enough and I didn't know what to do with it. Right. There's so many sensitive empaths out there who are like, yeah, well, I know the term right. now because it's right. so popular. <laughs> but what do I do? And what, what would you say to like, what would be one of the first things that you would recommend for somebody like that as far as boundaries go? In, mm-hmm. in your practice, other than buying my audio course, other than a shameless plug. <laughs> I mean, the very first thing for a lot of people is recognizing that there is anything that you can do. So it's almost one step before your question, because I think you're right. There's almost a little bit of the cult of the empath right now, which is, oh, look, like I'm picking up this. I pick up this. I had a little thing happen today where I was talking to one of my beloved family members and they were describing a, a physical symptom that they had. And like a very short while later, I had that same physical symptom, but I was able to stop it, right? Like I, I had the, we had made our connection. We'd been having the conversation. And then it was like a short while later. It was like, oh, wait a second. I don't have that. <laughs> I don't have that thing. <laughs> I'm not going to have that. <laughs> so I could do some changing. So the first step is to really have the mindset of other things that I can adjust about my body through training and through practice, my energetic body can also be adjusted through awareness, training, and practice. If you felt like whatever the state of your muscles are right in this moment, or however you were born, is that's the way they're going to be, and there's nothing you can do about it, well, maybe that's what you would believe, and therefore you wouldn't exercise, you wouldn't, I don't know, that's an imperfect analogy. But the first thing that I do with people is to start with some meditations that are about an awareness of boundaries. The very first thing is let's start perceiving them. And then on a more practical side is we start to kind of review what are your patterns in that class. And I do a um, a class where I'm present. That's an online course that's coming out. I mean, an audio course where you do it on your own time, you know, like a self-paced. In the, the energy ecosystem work that I do as, you know, in-person or online classes with you, 
part of the foundation of that work is understanding what's your energetic archetype, your energetic personality archetype. And we have, we have multiples, right? But just like, what are your patterns of being in the world energetically? I think particularly as kids, we develop these survival mechanisms. I'll give you, give you just an example. Children, particularly kids who grow up, who are this kind of sensitive type that we're talking about, but who grow up in environments that are unpredictable, right? So sometimes maybe an alcoholic parent, not necessarily, but where you're not really sure, maybe somebody who's got a temper or you were, you move schools a lot, or could be a lot of different circumstances, but where you need to be really aware of quickly changing environments and you need to blend in. So this one, and they're big surprise, they're all about nature. So this is the chameleon archetype, right? So you have learned how to very quickly change yourself to adapt to a person or a situation or a group of people so that you blend in. And it's a great survival skill. And in with a certain amount of doing this, it is a success trait, right? You go into a new job, you understand what the corporate culture is, you kind of know how to how to speak and how to get along with people, and it works great. Each one would kind of have the light and the shadow. The light is, it makes you a very adaptable person. The shadow of this is if you've done this so much since childhood that you, you change with every person and every situation and every job that you're doing more of the becoming so much like that other, that it makes it very hard to come back to yourself. What is your true personality, preferences, you know, who are you? And it's very easy for people with this chameleon archetype who use that skill to survive childhood and maybe avoid having somebody hit you or yell at you or becoming, you know, get bullied or whatever it was. It makes it very easy as an adult to kind of feel like, I don't know who I am. Your boundaries were so blurred. So for that type, we'd have specific things that we'd want to work with to keep the positive side of that but then work with how do we shore up the boundaries so that you can understand more about who you are. Yeah. And you get to redefine who you are because it's almost like you have an identity crisis in, in that particular chameleon situation. You, you're, it's yeah. almost like you're having constant identity crises yeah. like every day. I heard this on TikTok recently where, where one gets all their wisdom in the new age. <laughs> <laughs> it was somebody who had done research on what you're talking about was that people who grew up in traumatic environments, we often label them as empaths, mm -hmm. but they were, they were sort of saying a little differently that, that it's not always an empath. It could just be this chameleon right. archetype that's going on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here's the positives and here's the negatives. And I do love though, that it's about the, the practice then that's most helpful is allowing those people of which there are so many because wow trauma is just it's so popular sadly mm -hmm. it's teaching them to dig in and investigate their interior mm -hmm. so that they can find what they would naturally you know be pulled toward before mm -hmm. somebody told them what to be pulled toward right how powerful is that? I mean, that's like the hot shit, for lack of a better term. But really, it's, it's that feeling that like, I'm making the, this decision because I want to. For so many, they'd be like, yeah, so what? That's what you do. But for mm -hmm. people with this chameleon archetype, 
it's it's a major revelation. Yeah. Like, wow, yeah. I'm doing it just because I want to do it, not because right. anybody else wants me to do it. Sometimes you're like, what do you want for dinner? Is a big difference, right? What, what yeah. do you want? I don't know. <laughs> I what, don't I know. Want. what do I want? <laughs> yeah. So for people like that, would you give them the practice of, and we don't have to stay on this forever, but yeah. would you give them the practice of actively making decisions for themselves? Like some something like that, like simple stuff to start. Tell people what you actually want for dinner. Think about it if you yeah. don't know. Like, yeah. I would, I, what I always try and do both in, you know, one-on-one sessions with people or in classes would be to pair something that's concrete, like just a practical action. Like you just said, like make a decision, you know, make a specific small, small and manageable, you know, let Mm -hmm. people go at their own pace. You don't have to change everything all at once. Pair something that is concrete and physical with something that is energetic. So we're, we're looking to change the the energy that that infuses our body, body, mind, spirit trio, we're looking to change the way we, I mean, if we're looking to make change, let me just say, maybe we don't want need to change anything, right? But if you're looking to change a pattern, we want to engage the body, we want to engage the mind, and we want to engage the spirit. So if we just work on the energetic level and we don't make any practical changes, eh, right? If we're just thinking we want to make a change, but we don't do the other two, we want to do all three. So the practical action in that instance might be, yeah, make you make the dinner choice, right? The energy behind it might, um, it might be some healing work that I would do for the person. It might be, um, you know, one of the meditations that we did in, did in the class or that I designed specifically for that person. It may be, a, you know, a mantra or a, or something that we have prepared them for. So when it when their initial reaction is to defer or to always be looking outward to how they should react, we've got something for them to, to implant in their internal dialogue that starts to counteract that. Mm-hmm. Like, no, what do I want? Even if it's just the reflecting, what do I want? Who am I? How do I feel? Or whatever. That's not the best language, but do you know what I mean? Yeah. Something like so that. Engaging all three things. To kind of click it or uh de-click it, I guess, out of place <laughs> yeah. or in, into place, depending on what way you're looking at it. Yeah. yeah. Interesting that the the trifecta there Yeah, seems like that, that makes a lot of sense that you, that would be what would kind of like get it to full integration over time is if you could get it on all three levels. Let's go back to, there's this part in your book where you talk about, I believe it was one of your first encounters or your first encounter. Okay. A tiger. There was yeah. a tiger that came to you. And tell me about that. Like, why was that different from what you had been doing prior to that? So I, I did write, I know in the introduction, I did write about that particular experience. And I, I will say, I always get like a little bit somewhat tongue tied or somewhat, I don't think shy is quite the right word. Cause I'm not, I don't feel shy, but in talking specifically about my helping spirits, especially by name, it, it feels very intimate. I'll tell you the the reason why I shared, and I, I have permission to share that, about that specific animal spirit. And one of the reasons why that being is so important to me is that that tiger was, did show up in my first journey. But when I saw that tiger in that first journey, 
I realized that I had seen them multiple times before outside of a shamanic journey. Going back to what we talked about earlier about, how oh, there's so much overlap. In meditation, that tiger had come to me before. As it had turned out, there were several other animals that turned out to be um, helping spirits through shamanic practice that had presented themselves in other ways before I really understood or knew what shamanic practice was when I was much, much younger. But that experience of, okay, here's here's somebody teaching me the formal practice of journeying and having this exquisite being show up and recognizing them mm. was this amazing like coming home familiarity. It was like, oh, <laughs> right? Both incredible because it was like, oh, I know you. <laughs> this is amazing, right? Hey. But also <laughs> this practice felt to me like, it wasn't like, oh, that's interesting. It was like, oh, okay. I, it was absolutely magical. It was absolutely magical. It was a time when you felt like you needed to follow that woo. Can I say it? <laughs> I said it. <laughs> oh, well done. Well done. Yes. <laughs> but, but right though, kind of. What you said before, though, right, is that it was a woo that was so strong that it was like, that's the one I got to follow. Absolutely. No, and no, how, question. no and question. How long ago was that? That was. Uh, I have to do some math. <laughs> <laughs> like rough. You're asking like... a lot here. 20. <laughs> five six seven eight years ago something like that so a long decades. a long decades yeah ago. decades yeah <laughs> yeah so and and it was that the impetus for you to go on I mean investigate this path further and then you know become a shamanic practitioner was that specific if you can pinpoint it to a practical moment that would be the moment okay um you know, you can kind of do the looking back to where I had lots of other spiritual experiences prior to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it felt like that was the, and I mean, it could have gone other directions, but that was the, <laughs> follow the word, I love it. It was like that <laughs> moment was I, that I felt called in that moment. Called. Yeah. That's a good, that's right. A good and word I, don't, who, I don't know if I would have said it. I don't know if I, I couldn't have predicted what would happen after that, but I just knew the next step was, I knew the next step after that. Right. Oh, that's I didn't, good. I didn't say in that moment, oh, I would like to be a shamanic practitioner. Yeah, yeah. All right. I didn't do that. It wasn't that kind of choice. It was just a, you know, it was just a welling up, I guess. The drumming. I want to go back to that for a hot second. What kind of drum do you use for these journeys? And and can't I mean, could you use any drum or are there specific ones that you prefer? Why not? I think you could use anything you want, would be yeah. my short answer. Experiment. Experiment. <laughs> and now I now that we've been talking for a while, I knew that's what you're gonna you say. <laughs> <laughs> Bang on some stuff, see how it works for you. <laughs> I mean, I have I guess technically I have two different kinds of drums. I have some beautiful, you know, natural hide handmade drums that are like the very 
special made for my I have my grandmother's drum and my mother's drum and um, my mother has her own drum, but we each have one and I now have my grandmother's and, and then I have Remo's, which are synthetic and they're like the beautiful workhorse drum. They don't, they don't fluctuate with humidity and they, if I'm going to travel somewhere, I would always take the Remo, but you know, they're like a handheld drum. The reason I asked is because it's the preface to this question, which is, Mm -hmm. Should you be doing journeying without any context or practice or knowledge about what it is, in your opinion? Do you mean, should somebody take a journey without knowing what? Like, let's say somebody saw on TV someone with a drum Mm. go into like a meditative space. And so would it be okay for them to be like, hey, I saw that. I could do that and grab a drum and try to go into a meditative space and and connect with different worlds. I guess the Um, question is, is there anything that could be negative that would crop up for them if they didn't have like proper practice? I mean, I think with anything, if there's a, if there's a method that's established that people have done for a long time and come up with some guidelines for, there's always the possibility for something positive or something negative. There's a little cost benefit analysis that you would do there. It's like, are you the kind of person that's just going to be like, oh, hey, I'm going to try skiing. I mean, I don't mean to be flipping about it. (laughs) Would I suggest that you do that? No, I'd suggest that you find a teacher who has some background and particularly somebody who's going to create some safe and sacred space for you. This is not mechanical. This is energetic. And No, I don't think that's a great idea, but there's a difference between you need to pay a ton of money to go off on a retreat somewhere and do that versus this is something that you can learn and do somewhat independently, Mm -hmm. right? There's a, there's a balance there, right? We talked, you brought up, we talked about access, I think some, some point. Sometime. Yes. There's a middle ground. I think there's, and we talked about people becoming ungrounded, doing too much stuff, right? And yeah. I've I've seen that happen. It's like people get on a track and they do too much and they they haven't, they either don't understand or they choose not to. And I'm sure in your work, there's like, here's some <laughs> suggestions, protocol, like, like anything, you know, you get in the car, you put your seatbelt on. Is it dangerous to get in your car? Sure. Is it useful to get in your car? Yeah. Is it fun to be in your car? Yeah. Is there a purpose to be in your car? Yeah. Do we do things to keep ourselves safe while we're in the car? Yes. It's a good way to put it. Right. It's like, it doesn't have to be this big, spooky, scary thing, but also use some common sense. Yeah. And why don't you take some driver's ed? Why don't you go to, you know, I mean, again, I'm using these are terrible analogies that I'm making. I like them. <laughs> Go to a teacher. Yeah. Learn, right? Yeah, it's like the, uh, you don't want to be like those TikTok kids who are buying the Moldavite and then they're like, oh, I had this horrible experience. And it's like, well, Moldavite is one of the most intense stones. Like maybe don't start with that one. <laughs> maybe ask someone about it. Maybe don't put it right next to your bed at night. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't work with it, like you said. So we're kind of in this 
this period of time where everybody's opinion, everybody can do everything, everybody's an expert. There's always like all the information is out there. Everything's do it yourself. And on the one hand, you know, there's something to be said for that. It is kind of democratizing data and information. And and you know what? I I, I think that's great. And like everything else, the pendulum swings and we can take things too far. And I think we should also value experience and knowledge with something like this. It's beyond the method. It is the space that's being held as well. Mm. So clap, clap, my silent clap. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The, the, I think there's some humility there. Yeah. Well, I think we forget about that a lot that there's, you know, there's, there should be some space for that humility so that you can observe and not have to immediately assume the position as expert because it's exhausting. Yeah. You know, just kind of allowing yourself to get there organically instead of you have to be the master of it right away. I think that happens a lot. I think that you're right. It is exhausting and we we are trying to I think our timeline is speeded up, but we're also speeding it up for ourselves Yeah, at a place that is very stressful. We talked about this earlier about how it's so important to find your true power and connection to spirit by putting down roots wherever you are, I think is mm-hmm. how you put it. Yeah. It could be in a city, on a farm, or in a suburban suburban backyard, or mm-hmm. anywhere really. And then we talked a little bit about like home in general, like, you know, starting at home. Right. And you say that more, you expand on that in your book. What do you think then about people who live in a constant or near constant state of liminality? You know, let's say like I used to work in the music industry, like people, uh, artists on tour. I feel like that's like detrimental. But what do you think? I think if it works for them, then it works for them. I mean, I, on the upside of that, if that's how you, if you love what you're doing and that's how you make your living, then you could connect with all those different places. Like that's an opportunity. When I say, put your roots down where you are, I don't mean that you have to stay where you are. Mm. I mean, connect with where you are in that moment. So, you know, I'm thinking about like the, a nature practice or your, you know, practice of shamanism, then you have an opportunity every morning you wake up in that new city, go out and say hello to the spirit of that place. Mm. You make a lot, you make a lot of new friends. For sure. I mean, I mean it's a different thing, right? It's that's a very different experience from you or you are grounded and rooted in one place and that relationship evolves over time. But I mean, I take your point that that, that is there are aspects to that lifestyle that I'm sure are very challenging. But I, I would say that's, that would be a personal choice that, you know, for some people that may be, that may be nourishing. I don't know. I think it reminded me when I read that part in your book, it reminded me of a permaculture design course that I took. Oh man, the teacher was so good. (sighs) Just a wealth of knowledge. And the very first thing that we learned about permaculture is that it's all about observation one of the practices was go to a space. It doesn't matter where, but preferably in nature if you can or outdoors and sit there every day around the same time every day if you can 
mm-hmm. and just observe for pick. You can pick however long, five minutes, mm-hmm. 10 minutes, whatever, but sit there and don't be on your phone. Don't have any distraction. Just actively be with that space mm-hmm. and call to the spirits of that space. They don't really talk about the spirits in this right. course, but you know, we filled in with that. And I think that's why I went to there, but you're right though. I mean, who's to say that the person who's on tour isn't wired for doing that in every city. First pass, I would think that that's like intrinsically detrimental to their well-being, but maybe not. Maybe you could be observational and purposeful and find mm-hmm. meaning amidst that seemingly chaos, but you know, right. amidst that. Right. Yeah. Let's say one of your clients they live in a city that's like a big city and they really mm-hmm. want to connect with nature, but they just don't have easy access to it. Mm-hmm. What do you tell them to do? Nature's everywhere. Nature is the sky. So we think about nature as being, oh, it's got to be, in that case, a park, right? Nature, we think about, oh, it's all natural around us, but it's everywhere. So even if everything around them is concrete, you could look up and you still have the sky. I mean, I, I would give out a bunch of different ideas to somebody who is like really, really urban place. There are lots of little pocket parts that could be found. I think there are, you know, there are trees and bushes that are with sidewalk all around them that we don't think about as being nature, but that are beings that are there that we're sharing that space with, that we can make more of an effort to specifically connect with on a on a small scale, even if there's not hundreds of trees, there's maybe one tree that's right outside your building. What comes to my mind a lot is thinking about, you know, time that I was recently in New York and, you know, this corner that was at a big intersection, there was a bush and there's like all of the little sparrows that would roost there and be there every time I would pass it. It's like, this was a little oasis for these birds. It was scruffy and it was kind of nasty looking, but it was, (laughs) that was the nature that was there, right? And there was wildlife in it. I think that also you know, part of how I try and approach the connecting with nature, and again, specifically with the nature work, is that even if you can't get outside, nature is it's within us, it's around us. But we also want to think about, you know, people have different levels of access, not only the access that we were talking about, maybe financial, and but also mobility access. If you can't get out of your bed, does that mean you don't get to connect with nature? Well, that might mean you have a plant by your bedside. When we were talking about cosmologies and I was like, well, it's this and it's also all one thing. Well, if everything's kind of holographic, you know, maybe that plant is your hologram to the plant kingdom. Yeah. Right. And and, and you just connect with that one plant. Or maybe you go internal. Maybe you envision whatever natural landscape you connect with you would be really excited to be in and you make it an internal experience and that's your nature that reminds me of something that you said in the pre-call back a thousand years ago it seems like (laughs) you said we are nature that brings up that that great point that if you can't get to it physically it's in here you are nature and that reminds me of that um that book the women who run with the wolves Mm -hmm. that reconnecting to your wild right that concept. And I think it's cool to have you also telling the listeners that, 
you know, the ones that live in, in cities, especially that if they can't get to the, the nature that you can investigate it inside mm-hmm. and that you are already it. Yeah. Yeah. I hear from a lot of people who work with non-human entities and the central message that I keep hearing over and over again in my woo research is that we have heightened technology and it's increasing at such a rapid rate, but we're spiritually not at a level to where we can manage it appropriately. How do you feel about that? I think when you read about some of what's happening with AI, it's a little frightening. Truth. Yeah. So I don't, I don't disagree with that. I think you don't even have to go to AI. Just look at, look at social media. Oh yeah. I mean, there's technology is like so many other things in some ways it's neutral. It's a vehicle. We have the opportunity have had and as it takes maybe a life of its own maybe we lose that opportunity but we make big decisions about how we infuse technology with purpose and how we use it and in some ways we've done a great job and in some ways we've done a terrible job i think it's very important that we are collectively looking at how we can have integrity and bring peace and justice and all of the, and this is maybe somewhat different than spirituality, but I don't think so. Cause I think they're, they're interrelated fundamental values, which is, can be kind of a, a, a catchphrase that unfortunately has been co-opted in, in other areas. Right. So yeah. like I hear myself say that and it's like, Oh, values, but, but values being honest, caring, caring for one another believing that everybody is created equal, like things that really we shouldn't have to talk about at this point. Yeah. I think those are, that's like, for me, those are the example of we're not, we're not keeping pace spiritually where we should be at this point collectively on this planet that we're, that we're really still having some of the conversations that we're having right now is pretty disheartening on the spiritual level. But I also think we're at a place where things can move very quickly Oh, I just got a chill when you said that. So yeah. I think I think a lot of people are tired and disheartened. And I think we've got to keep with it. I think we've got to keep with it. Yes, that is the pep talk I needed today. Thank you very much. <laughs> and we can't turn away. I, I also, we cannot say, okay, I'm going to do these other things. I'm going to do these other practices, but we can't turn away from the practicalities either. And that goes to the straddling of the worlds. Yeah. We can't say, I'm going to, I'm going to take my journey and I'm going to go meet my power animal, but I'm going to forget to vote. Oh, that's a really good, that's a great example because that happens. And that happens so much, especially in the new age movement where it was like, hello. Yeah. Like activists would be cooking up amazing stuff. That's really, really important. And the airy fairy people would be like, I'm using this very broadly, but there are more specific yeah. examples. But they would be like, well, we don't have to worry about that because God will take care of everything. Or like, I, you know, I, I that's too low of a vibration for me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no, if 
That's not yeah. how that works. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you a question that I ask everybody at the end of my interviews, which is, we're going to get weird. Okay. What is the most profound, spiritual, oh, paranormal, supernatural experience, woo experience oh, that you ever had? Goodness. And you can get freaky because we've had all kinds of everything. <laughs> Everything I from I will not tell you my most. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna tell you. Fair uh, enough. Fair hmm. enough. I I hear you on that. <laughs> you know, huh. well, I'm gonna refer back to my earlier comment about how when I I do get somewhat, I feel like these experiences are so intimate. Here's one that I think I wrote about in inner divinity. So I think I can share it again and I won't even use names. So I'll feel even a little bit less. So I did this work with my mom. So my mom studied shamanism. We've done, we did a lot of our studying together. We've worked together and we've taught together and very, very, very early on, we each had a female spirit teacher, separate teachers, you know, in the spirit world, doing our journeys to them for a long time. Right. And at some point, and they weren't like, you know, famous, whatever. It wasn't like everybody in the past life was Cleopatra. This was not like somebody, I, neither one of them was somebody that you would know. It was just this, they each had a name. At some point, my helping spirit revealed herself to be someone different to me. And this is somebody who is, is a, a well-known being. This is going to be a long story. And it's going to be very anticlimactic. Anyway, I was like, oh my God, this is like, wow, this is so profound. This is this incredible experience I just had. And I sat on it for quite a while. At some point, because this is like a religious figure, like this is like me, very meaningful to me. At some point, I very sheepishly told this to my mother. I was like, I got to tell you, this spirit changed. She told me she's somebody else. And my mom <gasps> gasped because her helping spirit, at almost the exact same time in the past, previously, had revealed herself to her to be the same spirit that mine had just revealed. So we had this synchronous unveiling that our helping spirits were really this other being. Neither one of us were aware of it. And we both were like, okay, any, any doubt that we had of like, oh, am I making this up? Or is this any, you know, that was our moment of profound synchronicity and cross spiritual practice like overlap yeah it was it was very very amazing very reinforcing that you and your mom should be working together that you're on the right path that the spirits that you're working with are legit and it was very it was early on too so it was yeah it kind of blew us both away that is cool. That wasn't as bad as you thought it was going to be. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Although I really want to know who it is. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It was a pleasure and we got to cover so many things. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on. Find me. I'm always happy to connect with people and answer questions if anything comes up from what people have heard. I keep thinking about what Mara said. We are nature. 
What would our lives and our world look like if we spend a substantial chunk of our days investigating the interior of ourselves? I have a hunch that we would be happier and more compassionate to ourselves, each other, and the natural world. If you want to book a session with Mara or sign up for her monthly circle and or classes, consultations, all that, you can check out her website, wholespirit.com. You can also find her books, including Shamanism for Every Day, on Amazon and wherever books are sold. And you can also sign up for her audio course, Shining Bright Without Burning Out, which sounds amazing. And that offers spiritual tools for creating healthy, energetic boundaries in an overconnected world. Yes, please. That's available for pre order now, and you can get it on March 1st of this year, 2022. All of those links, per usual, will be in the show notes of this episode. All right. Remember, you are some kind of fucking indescribable kick ass being. Okay. Goddess speed. Bye. Thank you for following The Woo with me today. If you love what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to Follow The Woo wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling particularly stoked about this show, please leave a review and or rating. You can also support this podcast by becoming a member of The Order of Woo, where you'll get community access and loads of extra goodies exclusively on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash follow the woo. The Order of Woo patrons bolster this podcast and community and allow for the creation of more content, products, services, and events over time. Every little bit helps, and I'm so grateful for the patrons who have joined the order already. If you've experienced something magical, mystical, or just downright weird and want to discuss it, or if you're interested in sharing your expertise, or if you want me to research a woo topic with you or for you, please email me at followthewoo at gmail.com. Join me next week for another woo topic. And remember, tell the truth, be nice to each other, and if it feels right, 